Let's look at the news. This is Talk of the Town on Magic 590 plus 100.5. We're also heard in the Glens Falls, Lake George region on 1410 and 96.9. I'm Bob Cudmore. Our guest today is Sarah Foss, news columnist for the Daily Gazette newspaper in the Capital District. DRI, a Schenectady city, is getting what they call a DRI grant, Downtown Revitalization Initiative, millions of dollars for downtown renewal. You raised some questions in a recent column on the people who uh, were chosen, apparently, to advise the state as to how to spend the money. What's your concern there? Well, the concern, and I I have to give some credit to my colleague Pete DeMola for writing a story that called some attention to this, is that there's a number of people on the panel who are also pitching projects to be awarded funds um, through the DRI process. So Proctors, for instance, is asking for hundreds of thousands of dollars, and their CEO, Philip Morris, sits on this um, panel, which is, you know, the group of people you right. know, in charge of figuring out how to spend this money. So there's a potential for conflict of interest there. And I think Pete has raised some concerns in his story that I think are quite legitimate about whether the members of the panel have done enough to sort of point out these conflicts in discussion, to recuse themselves from discussion of these projects. Just if, um, you know, there's sort of the composition of the panel and some of the conflicts of interest that arise just because of who sits on it. I mean, it's also chaired by David Buco, who is CEO of the Galici Group, which owns and developed Mohawk Harbor in Schenectady. And, you know, the, one mm. of the big objectives of the DRI process is to figure out how to steer and boost activity at Mohawk Harbor, how to better connect that development to downtown so that it's easier for people to get to. I mean, this doesn't say anything about the merits of that project, but it is true that one of the panel co-chairs would benefit, obviously, mm-hmm. from from doing that. It would only help his development to have more people in activity there. So even if the goal, you might think it's good, it just raises questions yeah. about whether the panel members are acting in the best, you know, in the public interest it, as it, much as they should be. Has there been any pushback or any thought that, well, they might change the panel or add some other voices? No, I don't think so. If there would be any pushback... I mean, this is a fast process. It's next month in April when they will vote on the projects that they think should be awarded this funding. So, you know, I mean, it's is it practical to have a shakeup? I don't think so. Um, does calling some attention to this um, at least create the possibility that some of the funding and some of the initiatives will get more scrutiny or there would be more of a sense of the optics, like how does this look if we just give ourselves a bunch of money, (laughs) basically. You know, I mean, it might have an impact in that regard. But in terms of changing the the panel, I don't think anything like that would would happen. I mean, I think that horse is out of the barn at this point. This is who the panel is. It's just sort of regrettable that... um, you know, they didn't have to be involved with pitching these projects. I mean, one of them is, you know, funding for equipment to boost outdoor events downtown. There's a whole bunch of groups involved in sort of asking for funding for that project. Uh, You know, I think Metroplex and, 
the downtown Schenectady mm-hmm. Improvement Corp and Proctors. And so, I mean, maybe that's a project that Proctors didn't have to be involved in. If if Philip Morris was going to sit on the committee, you know, these other groups could have been the the groups that asked for the funding. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, I mean, the DCIS, the Downtown Schenectady Improvement Corporation, they have their their leader, Jim Slingo, he's on the committee too. So, I mean, there's, you know, you want movers and shakers to some extent on a committee like this, but it does raise some ethical questions, you know, when you see what the projects are and what, what who's asking for funding. We're talking with Sarah Foss, news columnist, Daily Gazette. Let's uh, do an Albany story, 787. What do you think of what some see as a far-fetched idea, tearing down 787, the big highway, to restore Albany's access to the Hudson River. I mean, I think it's a great idea. I mean, is it practical to just rip out the whole interstate like tomorrow? No, absolutely not. But I do think as we progress forward in time, there, it might be good to sort of view it as a little more realistic, the idea that you could remove at least parts of it. I do think you'd be looking at a question of how much does it cost to maintain this entire system as is versus, you know, the cost of of changing it to open up the riverfront a little bit more and sort of just get rid of this, like, enormous piece of um, concrete that kind of looms above the the city. And I think, you know, this isn't something that you could do in two years, but I think um, you could develop a way to kind of minimize the impact of I-87 on the city, mm-hmm. you know, going down 20 to 30 to 50 years. So I don't think it's as crazy as some people think. And I think if you talk to people in Albany, a lot of people hate I-787 and sort of what it's done to kind of downtown. It creates this kind of like enormous, unsightly barrier that kind of hinders the view and some access to the to the waterfront. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, there would be advantages to like completely reconfiguring um, downtown and the road system. Obviously, you're looking at a lot of money and a lot of, uh, you know, practical questions that need to be addressed. But there's an architect who is presenting some plans that he has for, you know, how you could kind of go about doing this. And I think, you know, that would be something to look at and see what you might be able to build off. So I don't think it's a crazy thing to start thinking about now with perhaps the idea that you're thinking, you know, decades down the road, what do you mm-hmm. want this to look like? Let's do uh, some conversation about the story that's always kind of looking over our shoulders now, coronavirus. In a recent column you wrote, the spread of coronavirus underscores the benefits of flexible workplaces and paid sick time for both individual workers and society at large. Can you expand on that thought? Yeah, I mean, we hear this a lot when the flu is really bad, and we're hearing it especially now with this uh, new virus, coronavirus, that, you know, people who are sick should stay home, you know, you should work from home. For some people, that's a lot easier said than than done. There's a whole bunch of people, the lower-wage workers in particular, who they may not have paid sick time as a benefit they may not have that flexibility in their job, so just telling them to stay home if they don't feel well, you know, that's a, that can be a hard ask, especially because these early symptoms of something like coronavirus sound to me a lot like you feel like you have a cold. And most right. people know they don't stay home when they just have a cold. I know that I don't. So, you know, it's a tough ask to, you know, if someone has the sniffles just to 
to not work and give up your income. So, I mean, I think in, you know, I think this coronavirus thing is shaping up to be very, it it will be disruptive. It is a big problem. We're going to see a lot of people get sick. We're only at the start of it right now. And having some more of these benefits and flexibility for everyone would help protect, you know, against the spread of this mm-hmm. of this disease or sickness or whatever it is. Has your life, like your work life or maybe your personal life changed because of coronavirus? I mean, I would say I've done some voluntary things right now. I mean, I'm sort of avoiding larger groups' activities. You know, there was like a kids' expo at Empire State Plaza last weekend where I assume lots and lots of families and their children descended upon it for a day of fun, and I was... You know, I didn't see any real need to oh, go hang out with hundreds right. of of people. We went to the playground where there were people, but it's sort of a smaller group. Um, you know, I always go out and get my lunch. I'm bringing lunches, so I'm packing my own food. I mean, little little things like that I'm starting to do with sort of the um, expectation that we may want to do some more of it. Mm. Why has it become such a dominating news story? I mean, I guess the obvious thing to me is, well, it deals with fear and that people are afraid. Well, people are afraid. But I think if you look at what has happened in China and what's happening in Italy now, I mean, we would hope it doesn't get to that point. But, I mean, in six weeks, is Italy going to say we overreacted by shutting down all the schools in the country? You know, what seems to be emerging is just a fast-moving virus where... You know, a lot of people will recover. It doesn't seem to affect kids that much, mm-hmm. but there's a very vulnerable population of older adults, and you really don't want them to have it. Uh, could, you know, kill them or make them very sick. So, you know, these are, I think, it seems drastic to people right now, I think, but from what I've been following in sort of the public health community, um, these are the kinds of steps we want to take if we want to kind of limit it. And also I think the point a lot of people have made is like, okay, we're not going to be able to keep it from entering the U.S. It's here. So, I mean, you want to kind of prevent um, really sharp shocks to the public health system, i.e. you don't want a bazillion people going to the hospital all at once. So if you can kind of slow down the spread and keep the health system from being overwhelmed, you're more likely to have those hospital beds when someone does need to go to the hospital. And, you know, what seems to be happening in Italy is, like, their hospitals are totally overwhelmed. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and we don't want that to happen here, and hopefully it won't. But the way to prevent it from happening is by taking some of these measures, like shutting down really big public events that right now seem extreme, but I think in hindsight will have made a lot of sense. My guest is Sarah Foss, news columnist for the Daily Gazette newspaper. Neutron Jack, retired GE President Jack Welch, uh, died earlier this month. He did a lot to boost uh, GE stock prices during his time as company president. He's a hero to many, but some people call him Neutron Jack because, oh, there's so many jobs were lost, or maybe even especially in, in Schenectady. Thousands of jobs were uh, lost on his watch. What, what did you uh, think of, of uh, Jack Welch? You know, yes, it's a complicated legacy. I mean, I think it's, I can, I'm comfortable saying, you know, Jack Welch was not my kind of guy. You know, the, you know, quick 
decisions in terms of cutting huge numbers of jobs seem pretty brutal to me. I do think um, there are people in this area who, if you weren't one of those people who lost your job, um, you're probably, and you sold off your stock at the right time, because we know now the stock is not um, what it once was. But I did speak to someone who, you know, he credits his uh, his retirement being so comfortable to, to Jack Welch and to having owned stock at the right time. And so, you know, it's, I think his approach to business is, by and large, unnecessarily harsh. Hmm. But I do think it's a more complicated portrait. Once you get outside a community, especially like Schenectady, that was especially hard hit by those cuts. I mean, there's a broader, in, there's an mm-hmm. impact he had. And I do think companies do need to change. I don't think his instincts were probably 100% wrong that if GE just continued the way it was going, you know, it could be one of those companies of the past, like Westinghouse, that, you know, really isn't around anymore, you know, Kodak or something like that. So his idea that things need to be, sh- you know, a shakeup, I don't I don't think that's probably mm-hmm. wrong, but I think there was a harshness to his approach and really a disregard for, you know, his impact on a community that was dependent on GE for so long. I mean, I will say that I saw a lot of um, write-ups that were like, he destroyed Schenectady. And I mean, we all know that cutting these jobs had a, a bet, you know, it was it was hard on Schenectady. But I don't look around now and see a community that is destroyed. I mean, mm-hmm. it's still here, and it's uh, more diverse in terms of its employment options. And, you know, life has has gone on. But yes, I mean, those were very hard years. And, you know, we do still feel the effects of them. You also did a, a column on a, a kind of a GE-related uh, human interest story that I must confess I thought was interesting also. Vonnegut in Alplos, a woman named Jessica Palmatier, who's historian of the hamlet of Alplos on the Mohawk River near Schenectady, is going to give a talk, I think it's next Saturday, March 21st, at the Maybe Farm in Rotterdam, about how famous novelist Kurt Vonnegut, the author of Slaughterhouse-Five, lived in Alplos after World War II, and he was a PR person for uh, GE. And you you, uh, said that you find it good that um, this is getting attention, that Vonnegut used to live here. Yes, I've wanted to write about this for a while, you know, Vonnegut's um, connection to the area. He was not here that long, but um, this is really uh, one of the more significant American writers of the 20th century, and he spent some very formative years here. He did, um, he worked for GE doing communications, and he, you know, the company did inspire him. His first novel, Player Piano, is inspired by his experiences at GE. It's a futuristic novel where um, the world is sort of controlled by machines because everything Mm -hmm. is automated and managers and engineers make all the decisions. Uh, You know, in his short stories, a lot of which I haven't read, Mm -hmm. apparently his brother Bernard was a scientist at Mm -hmm. GE and he would hang out with these scientists and sort of take some of their ideas and, you know, insert them into his work. I didn't realize that in his first novel, Cat's Cradle, there's an invention there called Ice-9. And, I mean, I think that came directly from a convert, you know, a scientist at GE who was working on something that, you know, kind of made Kurt's brain 
get going. So, you know, a lot of his this early work came from GE and I think probably, you know, helped make him the writer that he he became. Um and I just started reading a 1965 book, so that would have been written after he left called God Bless You Mr. Rosewater, and it's, um, I think, partly inspired by his experiences working as a volunteer firefighter in Alp House. Um, and I haven't gotten to this point, but Jessica, the historian, tells me that, you know, there's a description of the the, the alarm at the volunteer fire station there that's mm-hmm. in this book, and that you can find these hints of Alp House if yeah. you read it. So, you know, I think this is something where we should do more to kind of celebrate his his time here. Yeah. It was important. And, and his brother Bernard, I think, lived here for like 50 years. Yeah, a long he was time. here for decades. So, I mean, you know, that's, um, I mean, that's interesting too. Well, I, and I, I like Alplaus for what it's worth. I, li- I don't live there. I live in another part of the town of Glenville, but I love to drive through. It's almost like this kind of Norman Rockwell feel you get going right. through Alplaus. Right, right. Yeah, and I mean, Jessica said that. I mean, she said she sort of grew up there. I think she's, you know, moved away for a little bit. But she described it as kind of like a front porch community where everybody's always talking to each other. And just, you know, the Vonnegut name was just something you heard growing up. Like, you knew he he had written there and lived there. And, you know, it's part of what you know about the community. And, and she's working to get a marker that would sort of be a permanent um, sign honoring you know, Kurt's uh, time mm-hmm. in the community. And, um, you know, I mean, she also made the point that this is a pretty small community. Kurt's, like, the one really famous person who who he was, was here. So this is the thing, if you're a historian, that you're going to turn to as, you know, a really interesting piece of local history. Sure. Let me ask you before we wrap up about Mayor Thane's art. When I covered news in Amsterdam uh, in the early 2000s, Anne Thane was a force to be reckoned with in politics, elected to two consecutive terms as Amsterdam mayor. Now she works for the state of New York, but her artwork has been in the news. Nudes, primarily, on display. Yeah, uh, female nudes. So, I mean, that's not all she's working on, but sure, she has a show at Fulton Montgomery Community College. Her story is kind of interesting in that she studied fine art in college and did, um, you know, made did pieces, not paintings, I guess, uh, pastels, I think, you know, images at that time, and then sort of didn't do any art for decades. And after she lost the mayoral race for re-election in 2016, was cleaning out her attic, found some of these old pictures, and decided to take it up again. And if you look at her art, it's interesting. I mean, they do all look like the work of, you know, you can't automatically tell which ones were done in the 80s when she was in college and which ones were done in, like, 2018. They all look like part of the same... um, group of art and uh she's working on a uh mosaic that would go in downtown amsterdam not a female nudes uh sort of a it's called like mother madonna of amsterdam Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. something like that and it's you know kind of a holy looking woman with kind of colorful schemes coming out of her that's supposed to be representative of you know all different religious faiths and like a welcoming um symbol to have in the community um and i you know and the thing is i thought her art was uh 
was pretty good. Yeah. So that's her focus now, is Sorry. what she told me. I asked her if she wanted to get back into back politics, to, yeah. and she kind of laughed uproariously. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I think t- she's having fun doing what yeah, she's she doing. Yeah, she is. <laughs> and what's it? It's at the uh, Fulton Montgomery Community College Art Gallery, right? Yeah, it's called the Perella Gallery. Gallery. It's easy to find. Um, and it's it's up there till later this month. I don't think it's March 31st. It might be mm-hmm. a little bit yeah. earlier. I wish I could. You've been listening to Talk of the Town on Magic 590 plus 100.5. Also heard in the Glens Falls Lake George region on 1410 and 96.9. Our guest was Sarah Foss, news columnist for the Daily Gazette newspaper. This program is available as a podcast on albanymagic.com and on bobcudmore.com. I'm Bob Cudmore.